I have this space-age, state-of-the-art fan up here. I don't know if everyone can see this that's in the way of the... But this is awesome. It's so cool, I don't even have to touch it. It'll shut off at like 1 o'clock or something like that this afternoon. So I am grateful for that. Thank you, Jenny, and anyone else who was in on that. I appreciate that. We know how important the fan is on this platform during the summer. We all learned that lesson when I wore my suit the first time I was preaching here seven years ago. There's a wet mess up here. Let's pray together. Father, it is amazing to think through how many things wouldn't work if you simply removed your hand of blessing, both in ordinary ways and in more extraordinary ways like we're asking for your blessing right now. Father, I thank you week after week that things work here because you are kind and because you are merciful. We don't presume upon that kindness, Lord. That's why we ask you afresh for it right now. We thank you for the ministry of the word in this church. We believe very deeply that you build your church with the word. And Father, would you now send your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and be with us as we open up the pages of the Bible this morning. Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law? Would you unite our hearts to fear your name? Would you incline us toward your word? Would you satisfy us this morning with the message of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days and that we would show that gladness and that joy in a greater welling up of generosity and giving in this fellowship, Lord. So we ask you for those things. I plainly admit those are beyond my ability to accomplish. We simply rely on your help right now and we bank on it as we open the scriptures with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we began a sermon series entitled Grace-Fueled Giving, a study of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And that's where I'll invite you to open a Bible right now if you haven't at this point. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. If you wanted to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, those are available for you. And the text is on 968, 968 in the red Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 16 is where we'll start. This is a short series. Uh, It's only three weeks long. And I wanted to, again, uh, let you know that you can uh, pick up a preaching calendar that's on the information table on your way out today. And my main reason in doing that is so that you might put it on the fridge or somewhere that you have that you see regularly and pray for these sermons. And when I ask for prayer for these sermons, I'm thinking uh, both on the, the front end of a sermon and on the back end of it. God accepts prayer on both ends of a sermon. Um, We can and ought to pray before the preaching moment and and during the preaching moment. I mean, the most important work that I do every week as I study is to pray, is to lace everything that I do with uh, asking for God's help and pleading for his assistance as I prepare. And I, I count on those prayers from you too. I hope you pray during the week as we head up to Sunday morning and ask for God's blessing as we open his word. So join me in praying ahead of the sermon with these uh, sermon um, 
calendars, but also after Sunday morning. I don't know if many people think through prayer this way, but this is important. We can look backwards on the seed that's been sown and ask for God's blessing. Not unlike at all what we do with the seeds that we cast into the ground each spring. We, what do we do after we put them in the ground? We water them. That is exactly what prayer is in the ministry of the word in a local church. So take these outlines, fill them out, and then pray them into your heart and pray them into the soul of this local church. We don't want to cast away the seed of God's word at random. We want to pray these things into reality. So pray after the sermon as well. Now last week we learned that the first step toward grace-fueled giving is to ponder the examples of those who model it. That's where we started in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, first 15 verses of chapter 8. Ponder the examples of those who model grace-fueled giving. The examples we saw in last week's text were three. You remember these? They were the churches in Macedonia, the region that comprises uh, modern-day Greece today, a number of cities in the territory of Macedonia. We also learned about the example of the church in Corinth themselves. And then far and away, most importantly, the greatest example we have in the Bible of grace-fueled giving is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who left his position of riches to become poor on our account, to suffer the death that we deserve to die on the cross and be raised for us in our place. Out of his poverty, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that we might become rich. And indeed we are in this fellowship. Now the second step, toward grace-fueled giving is to view financial stewardship as less a duty and more a delight. The second step toward grace-fueled giving is to view financial stewardship as less a duty and more a delight. And that's why we pray for this change to happen. This is going to happen if this alteration happens in our souls, when it happens, if it happens, it's a gift of God's grace itself. We need the grace of God to move from feeling threatened about a series of sermons on giving to thrilled about a series of sermons on giving. And if that's happening in your heart, if you are grateful and thrilled that this topic is being addressed, God's grace is working in your life in a powerful way. It just is. This sort of renovation of the heart is a miracle. But underneath the grace of this miracle, there are other forces, I think, that draw us toward grace-fueled giving and drive us from it. And in our text this morning, we're going to uncover two of them. The first has to do with integrity, and the second has to do with readiness. So the second step toward grace-fueled giving is to view financial stewardship as less a duty and more a delight. Churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel first have come to trust in the complete financial integrity of their leaders. Churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel have come to trust in the complete financial integrity of their leaders. Now, before I read verses 16 to 24, I want to remind us and get us up to speed about the context. What's going on here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that Paul's writing about giving in this way? The year is around A.D. 57 or 58 in the first century, as Paul is in the region of Macedonia writing to the church in the city of Corinth. Not his first letter, likely his third, if not more. We have evidence of two in the Bible, and there was clearly at least one more that no longer is a part of uh, 
uh, history, but it is a reality. Third letter, most likely. And Paul is seeking, among other things with this letter, to call their attention to a significant opportunity they have to give. He wants them to take part in what's become known as the Jerusalem Collection. We mentioned this last week. For a number of reasons, the, the mother church in Jerusalem had become poor. There were a couple things that can, several things that conspired to this. The first is that drought and famine had occurred in the mid to late 40s, and the economy and the, the people in uh, Jerusalem had never bounced back. So there was drought and famine in Jerusalem. There was an unusually high taxation that the residents of Jerusalem underwent. There was a very high cost of living in Jerusalem. As well as the fact that because this was the mother church, they had a lot of ministers in training that they were supporting and sending out. So there was an incredible financial burden on the Church of, church of Jerusalem to begin with. Uh, men and, and other individuals were being trained for ministry and were depending upon Jerusalem's support. All of this contributed to just break the back of the church financially, and they became impoverished in the mid to late 40s. And Paul knew that if a collection could be taken up, especially among the non-Jewish believers that were in the Mediterranean area, this would make a major league statement, not only about the authenticity of the faith of the non-Jewish believers, which is a big deal, but also it would be a major league statement about the healing and reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the gospel's power to bring people together, Jew and Greek alike, would be unavoidable and unmistakable. So Paul's a man on a mission here as he writes this. He is seeking to stir them up to generosity. And remember, he never once mentions the word money. He never once directly asks them for resources. This is quite a fundraising trick. And yet, throughout, he is persuasive, and I will show us by the end of the sermon, he persuades them to give very generously. This is an amazing approach. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 to 24, Paul's addressing the church in Corinth about the Jerusalem collection, and the lessons that we can learn for our church are very powerful. Look with me as I read 16 to 24. But thanks be to God, who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. For we aim at what's honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we're sending our brother, whom we have often testified and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they're messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. What's the point here? The point here is that churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel have come to trust in the complete financial integrity of their leaders. In this paragraph, these nine verses, you may notice that Paul, first of all, 
speaks in the first person and in the second person. He uses I and my, and he uses our and we from an author's standpoint. The first person is obvious. He's speaking of Paul himself as he makes reference. But as he's talking in the second person, in his we's and ours, he's speaking, uh, first of all, of Timothy, who wrote this letter along with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that. And beyond Timothy, this, this uh, letter makes reference, to, or this paragraph makes reference to three other men. First was his apostolic associate, Titus. We saw his name in verse 16 and in verse 23. And then there are two other men that are mentioned, but they go unnamed for one reason or another. They were certainly leaders of men of great influence, I think, in the region of Macedonia that he's writing from. But to try to figure out the identity of these men, speculation about who they are is kind of a fool's errand. It's been happening for 2,000 years. As I studied this, uh, all kinds of folks have ideas about who these men are, but God didn't give us those names. Paul didn't give us those names, and we don't have them. But the first of these unnamed men is called the brother famous among all the churches for his preaching for the gospel. That's the name of this guy in verse 18. And the second of the unnamed men is our brother whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you, verse 22. And we'd be missing the point if we get bogged down in trying to figure out who these guys are. That's what we like to do. We like to be Bible codish with things and we like to wonder who the names are. That's not the point, the identity of these two men. Our concern here is the reason he's sending them along with Titus. That's our concern. Why would he do that? Why would he send a delegation of men ahead of him to the city of Corinth to be involved with this collection and not touch it himself? The reason he's sending them on ahead to Corinth is spelled out at the tail end of verse 19 and on into verses 20 and 21. Paul writes that this is to show our goodwill, to show Paul and Timothy's goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that's being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. So what's all this about? This is about complete financial integrity. Money and ministers of the gospel. This has been an issue for 2,000 years in the history of the church. This is a huge issue today, and it was a huge issue in the first century. Paul's reputation with the city of Corinth and his associates' reputation were not spotless. In fact, that's in large measure why he wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians, to begin with. In large measure, he wrote this to defend his ministry and his place and his trustability as an apostle. Trustability is not a word, so how about trustworthiness? That one wasn't written down here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, he's defending himself. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of Christ, we speak. He's defending himself. Or in 2 Corinthians 7, 2, he says, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Why would he say those things? Because the word on the street was, he had. And he's clearing up that those are false charges, that he is trustworthy. Paul's assuming nothing here other than the worst as he's seeking to draw a major league gift out of the church in Corinth. 
He wants them to give generously and willingly. How can he motivate them to contribute financially to the work of the gospel? And the move, as you see here, that he makes is nothing less than brilliant. If Paul can't actually step into their souls and do open-heart surgery on them to make them favorable toward him, he's going to do the next best thing. He is going to remove every barrier possible so far as it depends on him to create trust between him and the congregation. And in this case, that means sending a delegation of three men, Titus and the two guys that accompanied Titus. He's going to send them on ahead to Corinth, and they are going to finalize the collection, not Paul. He's not going to get within 10 feet of it. Paul's never been interested in handling this collection. We saw last week in 1 Corinthians 16.2 that he wanted them to do their own collecting week after week to put a little bit aside so I won't have to do any collecting when I come. He says that. In 1 Corinthians 16.3, he called for them to delegate their own representatives to accompany their own collection all the way to Jerusalem. Paul doesn't want to touch that money. And now here in 2 Corinthians 8, he's sending three respected Christian leaders with a good track record to complete the collection before he makes his way to Corinth so that he doesn't have to mess with collecting anything. That is financial integrity. At one point, later in 2 Corinthians, he says, I don't want your money, I want you. That's what Paul's after. You think this had an effect on the church in Corinth? It loosened them up a little bit? It did. I'll show us where in the book of Romans... Uh, Paul confirms that these folks indeed got, on and got in on the giving opportunity. That's a little bit later. But you need to know that they took him up on it. I think by the grace of God, it happened because they came to trust Paul and his co-workers. Churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel have come to trust in the complete financial integrity of their leaders. And if you'll excuse the pun, the million-dollar question is, do you? Do you trust in the complete financial integrity of the leaders of Mount Evangelical Free Church? It makes a difference in how much you're willing to invest in this fellowship. How's your confidence, for instance, with the discretion and the integrity of our ushers, for example, as they receive the offering in the morning? How high is your degree of confidence in those who count the offering, right? Down below me in about 30 minutes or so. I'll be handling all of our resources. How high is your degree of confidence in Roger Totman, who serves as an officer in this church as our treasurer, handling all those finances? How about our auditors, who once a year check Roger's work and make sure that he has been doing things above bar? From what we project to what we take in to what we actually spend. How is your comfort with the accessibility of the numbers in our budget? Do you know that all of this is, is public? Even what I make down to the last dollar is available for you this afternoon if you wanted to see that. These are fully public records that we're able to access at any time. Are you aware of these things? Do you take advantage of these things and educate yourself about the financial condition of our church? Another aspect of having a high degree of confidence in the financial integrity of your leaders is to know 
what we think, what types of ministry we might be able to engage in if there were more resources available at our disposal. I mean, if you think the leadership of this church or any church is just going to take your resources and go buy magic beans with them, then I can understand why there might be a little bit of a hesitancy to give to the work of the gospel to the local church. But what if by God's grace there was an uptick in our giving over the next year or so? you dream with me for a few minutes about what we might be able to do? I've been dreaming about that this week. It might mean our ability to increase ministry staff instead of shrinking it, as we've had to do this past year. It might mean our ability to increase our investment in foreign missions instead of cutting back on global missions, as we've had to do this year. It might mean, an increase of giving might mean for us the ability, you know what this was built for? The ability to purchase a baptistry. This door swings back, and this was originally created for a baptistry. Now, I don't know if that's code. Maybe we stopped the process on it 14 years ago because it wasn't up to code. But that was the design here, that we might be able to do baptisms uh, during a a worship gathering on a Sunday morning. An an increase in giving might give us that opportunity. It would be the first time in the 14-year history of the sanctuary that we would have a baptistry. What about an opportunity to give a facelift to Fellowship Hall? out there, or the basement hallway, or any of the children's classrooms, or to expand our library in some way, particularly the resources in it. If we saw sustained growth in financial giving, we might be able to give more generously to support our seminary student, for example, of whom we have three, two and one on the way. We might even be able to begin building relationships with maybe even a church planter in residence, and over the years ahead, even plant a church. And that would be the first one in the 68-year history of this fellowship. But it does take resources. It takes vision. It takes trust. Will you dream with me for a little bit? The degree to which you will is the degree to which you trust the leadership of this church to some, to some degree. If you do not trust the leadership of this church as the church in Corinth trusted Paul and his apostolic associates, you want to ask the question just to your own heart, what is it? What stands in my way? What answers do I need from this leadership in order to create that kind of trust? If you do have trust in this leadership, then does your giving reflect the trust that you say that you have? Church leaders or churches that give generously to the work of the gospel have come to trust in the complete financial integrity of their leaders. Second and and final point today. Churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel have developed a clear theology of giving and are prepared and ready to put it into practice. Churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel have developed a clear theology of giving. They are prepared and willing to put it into practice. Now remember the big idea today. The second step toward grace-fueled giving is to view financial stewardship as less a duty and more a delight. The second point is at the heart of this thesis. Look with me now at 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 5. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know of your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred most of them up. 
But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter or uh, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Last week we noted Paul's confidence in the church in Corinth, despite, at least in some quarters, a distinct lack of confidence from the Corinthian church in Paul. In chapter 8, verse 7, remember he said of this church, you excel in everything. That's a direct quote from 2 Corinthians 8, 7. You excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you. Imagine that. He said, you excel in our love for you. You are our favorite, just like parents aren't supposed to have favorites. That's incredible. Paul loved this church. He had practically unbounded confidence in God's grace in their lives. And they know about his plans for the collection. That's what he says in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. By the way, that's the only time in the, in the entire English Bible you're going to see the word superfluous. It's the only time. This is a great word. It's a wonderful word. It means redundant or excessive or needless. Now, look, it is just totally unnecessary for me to write to you about the, the collection in Jerusalem. You all know about this. You were the first ones in on it this time last year. He says that in, in chapter 8. It's unnecessary, but if he's going to be of maximum service to them, he's going to mention it nonetheless, just like a good fundraiser. Isn't it true? Every time we say that something is unnecessary, we go ahead and say it anyway. I know I don't need to say this, but you see, he he knows of their readiness, verse 2. In fact, he says to the churches of Macedonia, Corinth has been ready since last year. And you know what? That's what ignited the spark in the cities and the churches of Macedonia. They looked across the way, across the Mediterranean at Corinth, and they said, huh, I wonder if we could give that way out of our poverty. And they did. And they were showing the church in Corinth up with their giving. So, and he mentions, verse 2, he says, Achaia. The churches of Achaia have been ready since last year. That's the region that Corinth is in, by the way. He doesn't say the city of Corinth, because Corinth is the is the, um, the key city. It's the uh, county seat. It's the capital of Achaia. And uh, he pretty well, it's just like there's Chicago and Illinois. I mean, Chicago is the centerpiece, even though the capital is Springfield. It's like two different states almost, you know. Chicago is the centerpiece of Illinois. Corinth is the centerpiece of Achaia. And they've been ready since last year. Now, there's two kinds of ready. And Paul doesn't want them to be the first kind of ready. The first kind of ready is out of duty. Okay, we know you're coming. We know we can't stop you from coming. That kind of ready. They're ready to accept their punishment, the consequences of their actions, and just get it over with. Ready as an exaction. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, I don't want it to be that way. I'm not interested in wrenching anything from you. Not because you gotta, but because you wanna. (laughs) Not out of duty for Christ but out of sheer delight in the gospel of Christ. 
Now, this is a big deal, too, because as Paul points out in verse 4, there's two huge problems if they're not ready. For Paul, if they're not ready to give, it means that his credibility is shot. It's shot with the folks in Macedonia because he was bragging them up. It reminds me of uh, junior high basketball games when the cheerleaders would say, we got spirit, yes, we do. We got spirit, how about you? And that's what he's doing between the churches here. A little bit of holy, healthy competition. Macedonia's got spirit, Corinth, and they don't have near the resources you guys do. Do you got spirit? And that's what spurred the churches in Macedonia on. That's what Paul's doing here. So the first problem is that Paul's credibility is shot, but the second problem is that if, if they're not ready when Paul and some of the emissaries from Macedonia come, they're going to be humiliated as well. Uh, verse 4 tells us this. They, they talked a big game, and now if they're unable to follow through on their financial plans and commitments, the Macedonians are going to be crushed. Again, verse 4. If you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you. In other words, you guys should be more humiliated than us. So readiness to give willingly. That's what Paul's talking about in verses 1 to 5. No reason to be embarrassed. Prepared. Ready to give. Giving as you've decided in your heart to give. Not as an exaction. Actually, it says, as a willing gift. The, ble- uh, the gift that you have promised. And that word gift is, can be translated blessing. The blessing you've promised. The church at Corinth did have a clear theology of giving. It was superfluous for Paul to remind them of the collection. And the church at Corinth, it turns out, was ready to give. Big time. Not only ready, but ready and willing. Romans 15, verses 25 to 27, written just a short time after 2 Corinthians, Paul says this to the church at Rome, At present, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia and Corinth have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And then he adds this, and indeed, they owe it to them. He didn't talk that way in Corinth, but he talks this way in Rome. For if the Gentiles, that's Corinth and Macedonia, if they have come to share in Jerusalem's spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, Paul didn't raise funds that way in Corinth, but he spoke of it in Rome that way. In other words, Corinth owed them. He didn't do that. He didn't power up in the city in Corinth, but he did talk to Rome that way, for they did owe the church in Jerusalem a lot. So you see how strongly he felt about this collection. It was a big deal to him, and they did give willingly. Romans 15, 27 says they were pleased to do it. Paul got what he wanted. Not just the resources, but the disposition. Just like the Macedonians, they were thrilled to be involved in giving. So churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel have developed a clear theology of giving and are prepared to put it into practice. It happened in Corinth. It happened in the churches of Macedonia. The question is, will it happen for the evangelical free church in Mound? That's the question. And as you know, I don't count the offerings around here. We can all praise God that I don't. And that ignorance frees me wonderfully to preach this point home by way of application to you. I don't have a clue what you give. And that gives me the opportunity to be bold right now. Do you know what the Bible says about the joy and the wisdom 
and the unexpected blessings that accompany generous giving? Do you have a theology of giving? Do you know that the New Testament pattern for giving isn't the tithe? It isn't 10% of your gross income. It's significantly beyond the tithe. Did you know that Christians aren't under the law, but under grace? And if law-driven, an old covenant Jew yielded 10%, actually upwards of 25%, they did a triple tithe. We can talk about that next week. If the law was able to bring 25% of the income of every household in Jerusalem, how much more might the gospel be able to draw out of households? How effective is the gospel? How effective is grace-fueled giving as opposed to law-driven giving? Do you know that you can't outgive God, like we've said before? Are you aware that as you shovel it out to him, he's got a bigger shovel, and he will shovel it back to you? More blessing than you can ever imagine. Do you know that God prospers you not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving? That's why he gives you prosperity, to live on what you need. Give the rest away. Do you have a theology of giving? Do you know these things? And if you do have a theology of giving, we just need to ask the Dr. Phil question. How's that working for you? Has your wallet caught up with what you know up here about the blessings of giving? Does your checkbook understand what your head understands? If you know what to give, are you prepared to give? Are you ready to give joyfully like the church in Corinth? or the churches in Macedonia. For those of you who do give generously to this church, I want to thank you, and I am grateful for it. I stand alongside you in awe of God's grace to do so. Stay the course. By God's grace, see if you can press, keep reaching, keep shoveling it out to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom work. He'll bring it back to you. For those of you who need some help in this area, if you struggle with this, I have two encouragements for you. The first is believe the gospel. Fall backward onto the safety net of Jesus here. Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection have something to say to us here. If you're someone who's living in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world, and you are still struggling to be joyfully generous with all that God has entrusted for you, I just want to remind you that Jesus Christ died for the tight-fisted among us, for the miserly among us. And if you're thinking to me this morning, what right do I have to call you tight-fisted or miserly? Just remember, I don't know what you give. If you think I just put my finger in your chest, just know I, I didn't. That was the Holy Spirit. Think through the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling you to a life of greater generosity and freedom with it. The second step toward grace-fueled giving is to view financial stewardship as less a duty. It's not a duty. It's a delight. It's not a have-to. It's a get-to. Churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel have come to trust in the complete financial integrity of their leaders. And churches that give generously and willingly to the work of the gospel have developed a clear theology of giving. They're, they're prepared. They're ready to give. They put it into practice. 
So last week we studied models of grace-fueled giving. This week was motives for grace-fueled giving. Lord willing, next week we'll conclude our series in 2 Corinthians with means of grace-fueled giving. Perhaps you're moved by the examples of the churches in Macedonia and Corinth. Maybe you're developing a deeper theology of giving and you're finding significant motives to give. Next week we'll put this all together as we look at the all-important question of how? How does it happen? That's the means of grace-fueled giving. But right now, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, if we are going to see a significant response in our hearts to what your Spirit says in this text, you are going to have to become a greater treasure to us, to each of us. And that's no small trick given the culture in which we live, given the conditions, given the treasures that surround us. But you said it yourself in Matthew 6, no one can serve God and money. We have to take our choice. And Lord, I pray that all of us would choose God. I pray that the treasure of the gospel in Christ would be the greatest motive we have. Lord Jesus Christ, you left supreme wealth to embrace grinding poverty, so much so that you died a criminal's death on a cross. And in so doing, Lord, you have secured for us the power to give well, because we have become rich. There is nothing we would want more than spiritual riches and for you to entrust us with true riches, which are the opportunity to influence more people. Father, we can't take it with us, as the old saying goes, but we can send it on ahead. We can store up riches and treasures in heaven. May we be a church that does that by the power of your grace, persuaded by your word, shoulder to shoulder together as a church for your glory and for our great joy, we ask it. Amen.